Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 11, the book of Matthew, chapters 4 and 5. Our previous lesson in Matthew chapter 4 left off at a time when Christ was gathering his first disciples. Now, teachers and holy men gathering disciples, that was nothing new. In fact, John's gospel says that Andrew was John the Baptist's disciple before he became one of Yeshua's first two disciples. An interesting feature about disciples and their masters in the first century was that it was always the disciples that chose their masters. There were many teachers, many holy men to choose from. If a Jewish man wanted to go that route, choose a lifestyle or a cause that one of these many masters advocated. That was the case with the disciples of John the Baptist as well. But as we're going to see, Yeshua the Master, he chose his disciples. They didn't choose him. Now, since it seems apparent from the writings of the New Testament that the Jews believed that they were living in the end times, then the belief of Elijah reappearing and then playing a significant role and those turbulent times was ever present. So we see that many hundreds of years earlier, that in other very turbulent times, that it was Elijah who spotted and then chose Elisha. The master chose the disciple, and then not the other way around as it normally was in 1 Kings. 19, 19 through 21, reread. So he, Elijah, left and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, and he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. He himself was behind the 12th, and Eliao, Elijah, went over to him and threw his cloak on him. He left the oxen, ran after Elijah, and said, Please let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, then I'll follow you. And he answered, go, but return because of what I did to you. Elisha stopped following him. Then he took the yoke of oxen, slaughtered them, cooked up their, their meat over the wooden yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people to eat. Then he got up and went after Eliel, Elijah, and became his servant. Now, in his gospel, the Apostle John reiterates this same principle about who does the choosing when he writes of Yeshua saying to his disciples in John 15, 16, you did not choose me. I chose you and I have commissioned you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last so that whatever you ask from the Father in my name He'll give to you. Let's pause now and reread a section of Matthew chapter 4. 
Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 18. So that will be on page 1227, 1227, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Starting with verse 18. As Yeshua walked by Lake Kinneret, he saw two brothers who were fishermen. Shimon, known as Kepha, and his brother Andrew, throwing their net into the lake. And Yeshua said to them, come after me and I'll make you fishers for men. At once they left their nets and went with him. Going on from there, they saw two other brothers, Yaakov ben Zavdai and Yochanan, his brother, in the boat with his father Zavdai, repairing their nets. He called them. At once they left the boat and their father and went with Yeshua. Yeshua went all over the Galil, the Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, healing people from every kind of disease and sickness. Word of him spread throughout all Syria, and people brought to him all who were ill, suffering from various diseases and pains, those held in the power of demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. Huge crowds followed him from the Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, Judah, and Averha Yarden. It's across the Jordan, towns across the Jordan. Now, before we talk about some of the other men that Jesus recruited, I want you to notice that the candidates are not recorded as asking to me, what is a very logical question, why should they follow Jesus? Why? The wording makes it as though there was like this immediate acceptance, and they just stood up and left with him. In fact, what Jesus offered was not an invitation. It was a command. Now, the logical question again I ask, why would these men obey and follow him? Now, the answer to this question centers around just who these soon-to-be 12 disciples and the many other Jews who would seek after him thought he was, or what it was that he represented to them. In order to try and shed light on this issue, let's take what I think you're going to find to be an interesting detour. In Yeshua's day, there was a kind of Jewish man called a Sadiq. And while literally it means righteous one or righteous man, to the Jews of that time, it more indicated a holy man. Now, these holy men, these holy men, they were miracle workers who, among other things, healed sicknesses, disabilities, wounds, all in the name of the God of Israel. Now, Professor David Flusser has done some excellent research about the important place of these holy men in ancient Jewish society. And he points out rabbinic literature that says that a few years prior to 70 AD, in other words, before the destruction of the temple by Rome, four of these holy men were well-known and respected in the Holy Land. Now, interestingly, two of them came from the Galilee. One was named Hilkiah, 
and the other was Hanina Bendoza. He was believed by the Jewish community, it, rather it was believed by the Jewish community that these Sadakim, plural of Sadik, were divinely gifted and that they were much closer to God than the average man. Now recall that in Christ's day, the belief of the Jews was that the era of the prophets, the Old Testament variety, was over. Prophets were the miracle workers of that bygone era. And now, around the beginning of the first century, the miracle workers were these Sadakim, holy men. Now, there doesn't seem to have been very many of them. It's difficult to know exactly when this era of the Sadik arose, but it must have been at least as early as 65 BC because of the legend of Honi the Circle Drawer. Comes from that time. Now, the Babylonian Talmud tells the story of Honi sleeping for 70 years and then dying soon after he awoke. Now, the story refers to him as a Zadok, literally a righteous man. But again, to the Jews of that time, it meant that Honi held the honored position of a holy man. Now, while the story itself is highly unlikely, the point is that Honi at, did actually exist at that time, and he was considered a miracle-working holy man. Now, scribes, being the chiefs and the main authorities of the synagogue system, they were the elite of the Pharisees, well, they were highly revered. And as such, these scribes had egos. So they tended to see an itinerant holy man as competition. Because the common folks flocked to a Sadik in hopes of being healed of their various ailments, something the scribes certainly couldn't do. So there was this natural tension between the two. Now, it's further known of these holy men that they practiced poverty. This was a, a refreshing difference between them and the aristocratic Sadducees or the well-to-do scribes. So, of course, the common Jew, who was generally anything but rich, felt more of a connection to these holy men who had no possessions and held no pretenses. It was a, also more or less the norm that these sarkim would perform their healing miracles in private, often in secret, in order not to glorify themselves. Now, I ask you to think now. Who, might, who just might this sound like in the New Testament? Of course. It sounds like Christ. We see him characterized in the Gospels as a Jewish holy man, acknowledging that he was far more than that in reality. We read of Yeshua constantly doing what? Healing the sick, 
exercising demons, generally hanging out with the ordinary poor and the lame. In fact, it was his deeds of miracle working that attracted people to him by the hundreds and that gained him such a following among the common folk. But it also brought him the ire of the religious authorities because they couldn't do what he could do. So they saw him as a threat. Now, these miracle workers are described by later rabbis as being viewed as sons of God. Not son of God in the Christian sense that we think of Jesus Christ as a literal God on earth, son of God. Not that. But more in the Jewish cultural sense of this rare person having a mysterious closeness to God that an average Jew could never hope to attain. And it's not unlike how some will refer to pastors or to priests as men of God. We don't mean that they're part human and part God. We merely mean that they have devoted their lives to God and then he has responded by giving them a special relationship, ability, a position to do God's work on earth. That's what we mean by that. So the term sons of God was a sort of honorary title. It meant to explain the otherwise inexplicable about how and why they were able to perform these miraculous healings that they did. Now, only in the later part of the 20th century did we discover that these enigmatic tzadikim of Jesus' day and earlier had a, a personal awareness that the extraordinary powers of healing that they had been gifted with were because, for some unknown reason, God had chosen them. And he made them sons of God. Now we read of Jesus saying this in Matthew 11, verses 25 through 27. It was at that time that Yeshua said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you concealed these things from the sophisticated and the educated, and you revealed them to the ordinary folks. Yes, Father, I thank you that it pleased you to do this. My Father has handed over everything to me. Indeed, no one fully knows the Son except the Father. No one fully knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son wishes to reveal him. Now, this seems to us like an extraordinary proclamation by Yeshua, who here announces his self-awareness of just who he is. And because of that, he has been given revelations concerning the mysteries of God, some of which he passes along to who? The ordinary folks. And yet, 
Upon the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we find that the underlying premise of an especially righteous man, a holy man, being given a glimpse into the mysteries and the power of the Father was not new. So Christ's pronouncement had the effect upon most Jews of simply confirming their view of him that he was a holy man. Found among the several so-called thanksgiving hymns of that incredible treasure trove of scrolls, we find several Essen hymns. The preface to this particular hymn says, His message will be prudence to the simple. That is, the message of this hymn is going to speak of a sodic, saying something profound. But it's meant for the ears of the ordinary person, not the elite. Listen closely, because it sounds very nearly like the passage I just quoted to you from Matthew 11 that came from the mouth of our Messiah. I'm going to repeat, what I'm about to recite to you comes not from Scripture, Old or New Testaments, but rather from an anonymous writer of the Dead Sea Scrolls who can only be writing from the position of being a holy man, a Sadiq. Listen to this. Through me thou hast illuminated the face of many and has shown thy infinite power. For thou hast given me knowledge of thy marvelous mysteries and has shown thyself mighty with me through thy marvels. Thou hast done wonders before many for the sake of thy glory, that they may make known thy mighty deeds to all the living. Here's the point. This Essen hymn speaks of the attributes of a God, of God rather, working wonders, miracles, through this especially righteous man, a holy man, a son of God. And this holy man is giving thanks to God and glorifying him for the divine knowledge of heavenly mysteries, for the gift of wielding the ability to do these mighty deeds but that comes from God's power, not his own. To the Jewish mind and Jewish culture, Yeshua fit the identity of an authentic Zodic like a glove. He was a holy man who worked miracles. Now, the phenomenon of a holy man wasn't new, but it was something wonderful that seemed to come about only occasionally, unexpectedly, at God's will. And when a holy man appeared, well, people, of course, understood that the proof of his credentials was his miracle powers of healing. So the news of the advent of a holy man would spread quickly. And Jews would come clamoring to him for relief of every kind of malady. Holy men were men of the common people, not men of the elite. 
The Gospels paint Jesus in exactly this role. But of course, the Gospel writers also extol the joy that he was so much more than this. He was also the long-awaited deliverer. He was God's promised Messiah. So even Yeshua's claims to be the Son of God were not denied by the people at large. Nor did those claims seem strange. Because it was believed that every holy man who came and went was a Son of God. It's only that they didn't understand that for Christ, being the Son of God was unique. It was fully literal, as opposed to being an honorary title. Now, back to the question I posed before we started this detour. Why would these fishermen, and then later others, who don't seem to have had any prior contact with them, just jump up? They just jump up and follow Yeshua because he commanded them to. It was because they recognized him as a Sadiq, a miracle worker, a son of God. A holy man whose persona and attributes were known. They were welcome. They were understood within Jewish society. They had probably heard of him. Because Luke's gospel says that after the three temptations, Yeshua returned to the Galilee. He began teaching in synagogues, and his reputation began to spread before he started appointing disciples. Notice how in our Essen hymn, this holy man would pass on the mysteries of heaven that he learned by teaching them to the ordinary folk. Now, I suspect that the people sensed he was something more than a typical holy man. But even if he wasn't, being a holy man was exciting enough. So it would be an indescribable honor to be in his inner circle, and it would probably bring them some kind of benefit or higher status. Now understand, as of this moment, these disciples had little idea of who Yeshua really was, what their discipleship would eventually mean, what it might lead to. So after choosing Andrew and Peter, Yeshua also found another pair of fishermen brothers, and he chose them. So the first four disciples were fishermen. Now I want to pause for a second. How far should we spiritualize or make application about the first four disciples being fishermen? I say not as far as it's often taken. Remember, Yeshua was now living in Capernaum, which was a seaside fishing village. Fishing was one of the main, if not the main industries for the residents of Capernaum. And we find Yeshua walking along the seashore. So he was bound to run into fishermen. Now, fishermen, despite what you might have heard, they weren't uneducated and illiterate. 
Fishing was not an occupation of last resort. Fishing was what today we call a blue-collar job. These were generally happy family men, making a simple but sufficient living. Oh, they could read and write, probably speak and understand at least two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. Some also had a working knowledge of Greek, even if they perhaps weren't fluent, because Capernaum lay on, on the very important Via Maris trade route. And knowing some Greek, well, that was necessary for business. They and their families ate some of their catch, sold most of it at the local markets. They attended synagogues. They made the journey to Jerusalem for some of the biblical festivals. Had a modest level of scriptural knowledge. But, and this is important, like all of the non-elite Jews, the main religious knowledge and understanding that they possessed came from tradition because their place of learning was the synagogue where the Pharisee-driven tradition flourished. Yeshua was known to have been born and raised and lived in the same environment, went to the same synagogues, had not received any formal religious training. So his ability to teach the Torah and the prophets at an astounding level merely added to his reputation and mystique as a holy man par excellence. Well, that second pair of brothers that Yeshua commanded to become his disciples were Yaakov and Yohanan, the sons of Zabdai. Now, our English Bibles will call these two men James and John. James is a terrible translation because Yaakov translates to Jacob, not James. Although to eliminate confusion, I will use his traditional Christian name. It is widely held that this odd translation came about in honor of King James, who had ordered and sponsored the creation of the King James Bible. Now, John, decades later, became the writer of Revelation, the Gospel of John, and three epistles for 2nd and 3rd John. Not bad for a former fisherman, huh? Now, just as Andrew and Peter immediately left their nets and boats at Messiah's command, so did James and John. Now, does this mean that they literally abandoned their valuable nets and fishing boats and walked off with Yeshua? Even more, does this mean that they also left their wives and their children, assuming they weren't single men, to fend for themselves. Meaning, these women and children would have become impoverished and mere survival would have become challenging. Now, while I cannot answer those questions with any definitive evidence, I think I can give you an educated guess. And my guess is that the boats and the nets were retained and taken over by family members. And for these new disciples who had immediate families, they would not have done such a thing as to simply walk off and leave them helpless. 
Yeshua would not have expected them to. Because it would have violated the most basic of commandments to love your fellow man as you do yourself. Now, since these disciples would operate almost completely within the Holy Land for the next several years, they wouldn't have been listened to. They wouldn't have been respected if they had done such a thing as to make homeless beggars of their wives and their children in order to gain the prestige of following a holy man. So the statement that they left their nets and boats at once must be taken as a very general and abbreviated statement about their instant connection with Yeshua and their immediate obedience to his command. It more indicates without, that without hesitation, without reservation, they put their occupation and their life second to following Christ. No doubt even that would have had serious consequences. It would put a great strain on their families. If for no other reason that they would soon be traveling on a regular basis. But this matter is never directly addressed in the gospel, so we really don't know the details about their families. Nevertheless, I want to take this opportunity to comment. Because I get regular emails, usually from men, who feel a call to enter into full-time ministry. And yet they have wives and children and good jobs, and to make this change would involve sacrifice and acceptance on the part of the entire family. There is no perfect one-size-fits-all answer to this dilemma. But my advice is this. Start by remembering this is not the first century. Our modern society is not ancient Jewish society. And so the consequences and challenges are different now than then. Now, ideally, a man or a woman will be open to God's call to service, in full-time ministry, before they're married, and start a family. Or perhaps a man and a woman will marry with the understanding that full-time ministry is their shared destiny. So they'll organize their lives to fulfill it at some point. Could be that a man has already started a family. Here's the calling later in life. But his wife is willing to wholeheartedly support his calling. Join him. Accept the necessary sacrifices to achieve it. That's my story. No one's story is identical to another's. However, in cases where a man has a wife and a family with all of its obligations, and the wife is firmly not on board, <laughs> not with such a profound change, then it should not be done. If a person has a debt load that would not permit him or her to pay their debts on the likely lesser amounts of income that ministry work would generate, it should not be done till the debts are paid. 
we can serve God in ministry in so very many important and indispensable ways without completely abandoning our jobs, turning our backs on our bills and our debts, and uprooting an unwilling and unhappy family. The calling that Christ has for us to be his disciples is, just like with the first 12, about committing our lives to him just as we are. For many, if not most of us, that is a radical change in and of itself. And it requires a time of learning and adapting. Our newfound faith in him also means that we must follow him, even if our spouses and parents and children and friends and bosses don't accept it. Does this mean that our spouses might leave us simply because we change, repent, and become disciples of Christ and worshipers of the God of Israel? Might it be that we could lose our jobs over it? Oh, yes, it does. And I personally know of cases that this has happened. Especially if one is a Jew in our time, it very likely will mean that your family will shun you. You'll be considered a traitor to them, to Judaism. But as Yeshua said in Luke 14, 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, his mother, his wife, his children, his brothers and his sisters, yes, and his own life besides, he cannot be my Talmud, my disciple. See, so many people hear what they want to hear in this verse. Too often they overlook <laughs> what is the key phrase. And his own life besides. They think of this verse as a severe Jesus actually suggesting that a new believer ought to be ready to turn against his family and despise them for Messiah's sake. This is in no way what is being commanded. This is about understanding the cost of following Yeshua and that you may face tremendous opposition. It is about giving up one's own life such that nothing is to rank higher than love for God and his son and obedience to them. Loyalty to God must come first. All else, second. Paul has much to say about marriage and family for the person who comes to faith and now has some of these dilemmas to deal with. But in every case, he suggests that before forsaking all to enter full-time ministry, that one is to fulfill their obligations, marital and otherwise, and to carefully count the cost. And you can read some of his comments ab about this in 1 Corinthians 7, for starters. Now, one final note on this matter. Verse 22 says that the two brothers left their boat and their father and went with Yeshua. This does not mean that they broke their relationship with their father. It means that the father was fishing with his two sons on the family-owned boat when Yeshua approached them and commanded his sons to become disciples. It is simply that their father was there. We're not told what the father's reaction was to 
to this sudden turn of events. Now, verse 23. Verse 23 adds so much to the context of Yeshua's ministry if we'll just accept it. It says that Yeshua went around speaking in synagogues because that's where common Jews met for worship, for learning, for fellowship, for information. We're told that he proclaimed the good news, the gospel of the kingdom. What was that good news? You know, typically a Christian's mind says, well, preaching the good news must mean that Jesus told them that he was the Messiah, and that they needed to put their trust in him. But that's not the case at this point in his ministry. We have to think back to what John the Baptist proclaimed, and then the same message that Jesus also proclaimed as the good news, and it's pronounced just a few verses earlier. It is not that he is the Messiah and can himself provide for, for forgiveness of sins, but rather that it was time for people to repent because the kingdom of heaven is near. At the moment, that was the gospel. That was the good news. Now, to the Jews of that era, the meaning of Jesus' message was that the culmination of the end times with all of its horrors and deprivations was about to come about. And the arrival of the joyful promised restoration was imminent. God was about to kick the Romans out of the Holy Land and to establish his rule on earth as it is in heaven. That's what they were thinking. Now, notice the next part of verse 23. It says, Christ went about healing people from disease. That is, he continued to live and to project the persona of a sodic, a holy man. For the moment, that is how the Jewish people were permitted to perceive him. Because, hallelujah, a holy man had appeared. News of him began spreading. All over Syria. People began streaming to him, even from there, with every imaginable kind of ailment and lameness, including those who were held under the power of demons. Why the mention of Syria? Syria at this time had a huge Jewish population. Syria was on the Galilee's northern border. And the point of mentioning it is to show how far and wide the news of this miracle worker spread, even to the not-too-distant Jewish diaspora. It also highlights what I told you earlier. The appearance of a holy man was rare. And when one did appear, news of him spread like wildfire, so that the opportunity to be made well might not be missed. But what we must also notice is what is not said by Matthew. In verse 25, we're told that all these people were coming from places like the Galilee, the Ten Towns, that's the Decapolis, the city, the capital city of Jerusalem, 
the province of Judea to the south, and even areas across to the east of the Jordan River. Now, Galilee is mentioned in the list, of course, as Judea, but why not Samaria that lay in between them? Why no mention of the prominent Tyre and Sidon? It is because Samaria was a mostly Gentile and mixed-blood province, as were the major cities Tyre and Sidon. The Gentiles living there wouldn't have understood the nature and importance of a Sadiq, which was a purely Hebrew construct. Besides, Yeshua said that he only came for who? The lost sheep of Israel. And Matthew seems intent on making that point by using the list of places that these thousands of Jews came from. Gentiles, they were beyond Yeshua's scope for the time being. Thus, those multitudes who came to be healed and to hear a message of hope consisted almost entirely of Jews. Now, I'm going to go a little long today. What we have been reading in the last couple of verses about these huge crowds coming to Yeshua for healing and hope are the preface for what comes next, the Sermon on the Mount. Who did they think they were coming to see? For what purpose did they come? They came to see the miracle-working Sadiq. Some came for physical healing, we're told. Others came because of his message that tells them of hope in the end times. And so very importantly, the only way to get right with God in preparation for it. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 5. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to take the time today to read it all. It's important we connect all this. Page 1227, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Notice the first words. Seeing the crowds, Yeshua walked up a hill. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he began to speak, and this is what he taught them. How blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the land. How blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. How blessed are those who show mercy, for they shall be shown mercy. How blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. How blessed are those who make peace, for they will be called sons of God. How blessed are those who are persecuted because they pursue righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. How blessed you are when people insult you and persecute you and tell all kinds of vicious lies about you because you follow me. 
Rejoice, be glad, because your reward in heaven is great. They persecuted the prophets before you in the same way. You are salt for the land, but if salt becomes tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out for people to trample on. You are a light for the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Likewise, when people light a lamp, they don't cover it over with a bowl, but put it on a lampstand so that it shines for everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before people so that they can see the good things you do and praise your Father in heaven. Now, don't think that I've come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. I've come not to abolish, but to complete. Yes, indeed, I tell you that until heaven and earth passes away, not so much as a uter or a stroke is going to pass from the Torah. Not until everything that must happen has happened. So, whoever disobeys the least of these mitzvot, these commands, and teaches others to do so will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever obeys them and so teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness is far greater than that of the Torah teachers and the Parshim, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You've heard that our fathers were told, do not murder, and that anyone who commits murder will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who nurses anger against his brother will be subject to judgment. To whoever calls his brother, you good for nothing, he will be brought before the Sanhedrin that whoever says fool, he incurs the penalty of burning in the fire of Gehinnom. So if you are offering your gift at the temple altar, and you remember there that your brother has something against you, leave your gift. Leave your gift where it is by the altar. Go, make peace with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. Someone sues you. Comes to Come to terms with him quickly while you and he are on the way to court, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer of the court, and he may be thrown in jail. Yes, indeed, I tell you, you will certainly not get out until you've paid the last penny. Now, you've heard that our fathers were told, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that a man who even looks at a woman with the purpose of lusting after her, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye makes you sin, gouge it out, throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than your whole body thrown into Gehinnom. And if your right hand makes you sin, cut it off, throw it away. Better that you should lose one part of you than have your whole body thrown into Gehinnom. It was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a get. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of fornication, makes her an adulteress and that anyone who marries a divorcee commits adultery. Again, you have heard that our fathers were told, do not break your oath. Keep your vows to Adonai. I tell you, just don't swear at all. Not by heaven, because it's God's throne. Not by earth, because it's his footstool. Not by Jerusalem, because it's the city of the great king. Don't swear by your head, because you can't make a single hair white or black. Just let your yes be a simple yes, your no a simple no. Anything more than this just has its origin in evil. You have heard that our fathers were told eye for eye, tooth for tooth, but I tell you not to stand up against someone who does you wrong. On the contrary, if someone hits you on the right cheek, let him hit you on the left cheek too. Someone wants to sue you for your shirt, let him have your coat. 
If a soldier forces you to carry his pack for a mile, carry it for two. When someone asks you for something, give it to him. When someone wants to borrow something from you, lend it to him. You have heard that our fathers were told, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Then you will become children of your father in heaven. For he makes his sunshine on the good and bad people alike. He sends his rain to the righteous and the unrighteous alike. Now, what reward do you get? If you love only those who love you, why even tax collectors do that? And if you are friendly only to your friends, are you doing anything out of the ordinary? Even the Gentiles do that. Therefore, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Now, this chapter is just the beginning of Matthew's three-chapter-long treatise on what happened and what Christ said in his seminal speech atop a hill in the Galilee, addressed to a wide spectrum of his people, the Jews. Why is this so important to Matthew that he'd spend so much time with it? It's because for the Jewish believer Matthew, everything that Yeshua speaks has to do with the Torah and the law of Moses. The first 10 verses are in Christian tradition called the Beatitudes. Now, I find it interesting that while they are but the first few verses of the extensive Sermon on the Mount, Christianity has separated them away as though they are an unrelated matter with what follows. It's not unlike what Christian tradition has also done with the Ten Commandments. <laughs> that even though they are but the first of hundreds of other commandments that God gave through Moses, Christianity has also separated them away as though they have no connection to what follows. Clearly, such a separation and distinction was not God's, Moses's, Christ's, or Matthew's intent. Nor should believers take it that way. Rather, these first verses of chapter 5 represent Yeshua's opening words, a, a, a sort of a preamble, which, like any good leader or speaker does, gives recognition to exactly who his audience is. No doubt. If he was speaking to the elite among the Jews, to the temple Sadducees, to the synagogue scribes, for instance, these would not have been the descriptive words he would have chosen. We'll start peeling back the layers of this Sermon on the Mount next week. <music> 